You are listening to the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach's Curto Conversations podcast. In each episode, campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnik rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nave, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Anita, and Mohican nations remain present. And welcome back to the Curdo Conversations podcast. I'm Benjamin Lindsay, the senior researcher for Curdo. With me today, I'm joined by two other graduate students working at Curdo. Marisola Chili Chacho, hopefully that was close, and Sterling Knox. They recently joined the center, and I just wanted to give them an opportunity to come on and talk about who they are, the kind of research that they do outside of Curdo, and what attracted them to Curdo. I will allow them to introduce themselves. Marisol, why don't you go first? I'd love to. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, so my name is, again, Marisola Jalili Chacho, and I am a doctoral student in philosophy at Marquette, and I am the first carceral studies fellow at Curdo. Uh, and I came to this position through my work uh, with, this, with developing blended courses that um, involve incarcerated students and formerly incarcerated students to attend classes at Marquette with traditional undergraduate students on shared issues of social justice. And I've been working on this with Dr. Teresa Tobin for five years and joining Rob Smith, Dr. Rob Smith and Dr. Darren Wheelock, uh, we came together to try to establish um, an expansion of the blended courses and eventually, hopefully, a degree offering program at Marquette for the currently and formerly incarcerated. And it's based on the blended class model that uh, Dr. Tobin and I founded. Although we didn't start it from scratch, it, the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program has been doing this since the 60s, but we are doing something different and we can talk about the details of that. So in addition to doing this work, which is my praxis and pedagogy, if we want to delineate uh, things in that way. I My research is on the colonial history of Balkan identity. Uh, I'm from the Balkans myself, and uh, by studying decolonial theory, I came to see the pervasive way that it's affected literally every place on Earth, <laughs> uh, including the European continent and parts of the European continent. And what I want to show is how Eastern Europe um, was also otherized in this process of uh, colonization, not because it was colonized, but because the colonial logic led to the othering of people and the racialization of others as a way of inferiorizing anybody who wasn't part of the Western European cluster of power. And um, I also intend to show the ways that Europe was grappling with its own self-conception through its de-identification with the rest of Europe that didn't seem to be civilized and whatever else they uh, decided was criteria for membership in the Western European world. So I can talk more about that too if we want to, but these are the prongs of my work, the, the, the 
praxis is related to changing institutions of education so that they are more inclusive and basically decolonizing them um, with a focus on incarcerated populations here in Milwaukee because of how grave of a problem it's become. And then the research focusing on the Balkans to also extend decolonial theory outside of where it's at currently. Thank you. There is actually a lot there that I would like to get into with you about uh, decolonization and especially in regards to the Balkans that might not be appropriate for this, but we might have to have that conversation sometime. Um, Sterling, why don't you tell us who you are? Sterling Knox, Indigenous Cause, Nagajibwanong, and Dunjaba. What I said was in, in Anishinaabe Mawin or Ojibwe language, I said, uh, my name is Sterling Knox and I come from Fond du Lac. Fond du Lac is in Minnesota. It's a reservation community just north of the Twin Cities, a few, a few hours, give or take. I am a first year PhD student in philosophy. Currently, the, the research I'm interested in centers around senses of agency and uh, responsibility and how, how responsibility emerges from those different senses of agency, um, especially in terms of oppression. Um, how I got introduced to Curdo was, so on my own time, separate from the research I do in the academic domain, um, I do a lot of reentry work, you know, via some, the, my associations with Minnesota Reentry re Collaborative Initiative, Word Soup. And when I came to Marquette, I got wind of a lot of the work that's being done in terms of, you know, like carceral studies and reentry via Teresa Tobin. And serendipitously, I you know, got connected with Marisola and we just sort of just met one day and it all came out. And she was like, you know, she recruited me to come pretty much uh, participate with Curdo. And then I got introduced to Rob and got pulled into the team. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm very happy that both of you are here. And it's interesting, you know, as the first carceral studies intern and just the researchers that you guys are, the, the research that you guys are doing, as somebody who was here before this was developed and seeing this grow out of efforts that Rob and a previous graduate student, Teddy Williams, who was on the last episode talking about this before he graduated. I mean, that was much more of a community focused look at the way electronic monitoring is being used and how that is affecting communities. It's championed as a diversionary tactic that keeps people out of prison, but it also has effects that are on the community and on the individual that are very, in some ways are similar to incarceration, in some ways aren't, of course. And I don't really want to get into that, but seeing how that has grown into these free entry efforts has been really amazing. And I, I thank the both of you for the work that you're doing and how this organically grew out of another part of the university that was able to team with what we were doing. What, if I may ask, initially got both of you interested in doing these reentry and carceral studies stuff on your own time, because you, really this is not what you're doing academically. This is something that you guys ha have been doing on your own that is accentuating your research, not born out of it, or at least so it seems to me. That's going to be a long, complicated answer. I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but I do want to say that 
I've heard of Teddy and we are continuing that work that Teddy and Rob were doing. Uh, Sterling and I are taking over in that respect. Uh, so in addition to doing the education stuff, we also recognize that carceral studies, I mean, it's, it's a, we are taking the lead uh, in a lot of underexplored and under-resourced topics and or themes in the whole field, right? So now it's becoming, uh, all of a sudden, I think, there is interest from institutions themselves to support this work. And so those of us who have been doing it are coming together in ways that feel more supported and more streamlined. So the electronic monitoring research, as well as the Wisconsin decarceration platform, which I'm working on and Sterling will eventually work on, are also part of what we're doing. So there are multiple, multiple projects going on. But how, how I started, I started with another grad student, Drew Dumaine. She was another doctoral student in the philosophy program. And we applied for an APA grant to try to diversify the department. We didn't really think about incarceration specifically at that point, but we were thinking about how, what's a nice way of putting this, how the experience of being in graduate school felt very much like it was not made for, graduate school was not really made for students like us to flourish. We're non-traditional students, first generation, at least I am first generation immigrant. And even though I come from Europe, Eastern Europe, that has been economically and politically disadvantaged pretty much forever. And I've gone through periods of political anarchy where I've had my education was stunted. I've had to learn in a basement or, you know, there's lots of rampant corruption in higher education and, and schooling. So people really value education in the communities that I come from. And my parents pretty much sacrificed everything to bring me here just so I could be educated. But then I found myself really at odds with the educational environment that I was in. Uh, they were elite. They were exclusive. They represented people that were culturally and, and socioeconomically very different from me. Yeah, so, so that was difficult. And then when I came to Milwaukee, I was struck by how... Uh, segregated it was racially. I grew up in the inner city of Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was an amalgam of immigrants and different races, and that be, that was what was normal to me during high school. College and graduate school really changed that, and just seeing the different demographics alongside studying identity and alongside studying social systems, it became very clear to me uh, that incarceration is one of the continuing harms towards populations that are not white, but specifically African-American populations and Native populations in, in Milwaukee. So we were just sort of talking about what can we do, what can we do in philosophy in particular to make stuff that we're thinking about relevant and how can we teach it in ways that aren't so exclusive and elitist. And so we teamed up with Dr. Teresa Tobin and Dr. Tony Perasini at the time and just piloted this class. Right? We cold called an, a correctional facility and we're like, hey, we want to do this thing. You want to do it with us? They're like, yeah. And and it was incredible. It was transformative. All of us saw that it was possible to do. Um, and it was a lot of work, but it was the coming together of four people who really wanted to make it happen and who had personal stake in it, but also the resources, the, you know, so the, the faculty members could tap the institutional resources, but the grad students could get the experience. It was, it's really hard to describe because it came together partly out of, you know, the various intents that I'm that I'm expressing, but also partly because 
that was the right moment. And we didn't get that APA grant, but then we applied for a much larger grant, which we did get. And so we continued to teach this class for, for a couple of years and develop the syllabus and the curriculum. Uh, we were able to go get training from the Inside Out program, got to go inside other correctional facilities um, and be trained by people on the inside, uh, read more about the work, and then coming together with Rob and Darren, who were who were who who had been working in the community to establish connections uh, that demonstrated that this work was very much needed and there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And so it kind of just exploded. And now we're offering six courses in the spring of, of 22. Uh, with the hope of offering 10 courses by spring of 23 and then 15 following spring and then degree offering at some point. Well, that's, <laughs> that's a that's, very long answer, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I sort of got a long answer too. It's a little, yeah. different, a little bit different of a trajectory, but um, so what got me into this sort of work is, you know, I sort of come from it like coming up in whether it is whether it was the reservation community or the inner city you know i found myself you know into trouble you know as a youngin i've been locked up i've been electronically monitored i'd say the majority of my my friends growing up are either in and out right now or currently serving a life sentence so i'm 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 of the cloth as they say so you know Fast forward to, you know, I was doing uh, McNair research in my undergrad, and I was focusing on, like, you know, research methodologies and, you know, how these data can get skewed, so, so to speak. And um, with some of the alarming rates of recidivism in reservation communities, I sought out trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, what the problems were and come, you know, come to find out that it's, it's you know, the, the research and the data produced serve to, as the basis for creating these risk assessment tools. And the risk assessment tools, when somebody enters into the system and sets a correctional plan and a reentry plan, it sort of gives them a trajectory and, and depending on the outcome of that risk assessment, can you know send them towards some sort of intensive supervision or towards um, some sort of plan that doesn't really fit their lifestyle, culture, and situation, and can therefore lead to them recidivating and violating their uh, the terms of their release. Something that dropped out of that research was the reconfiguration of some of these risk assessment tools in one particular reservation community to be more culturally competent. So that was one area that I started really getting pulled in. And as I found myself in a position to be of use in these in these types of areas, I, you know, I found myself being some mentor because that's always needed support in support groups for men and women reentering. I got connected with a former mentor of mine who was doing this type of work, but on a broader scale, on a larger collaborative initiative in Minnesota, through the Department of Corrections, through numerous nonprofits, and a national, you know, pro bono institute at the national level. And he was doing some good work and he pulled me in and so started going into um, some federal institutions and trying to be a resource and support for individuals trying to 
find their way through the dark and how they're going to be successful once they um, step out. And more more recently, there's there's been a lot of there's a big disconnect between in the federal system between the sort of reentry staff and case managers and the actual institutions in the reservation community that deal with reentrance. And there's sort of like a disconnect. And I've been trying to bridge the gap and open these lines of communication and put something in the place to make their transition more seamless, help them be successful. So so that, yeah, that's pretty much my entrance, my entrance into this, doing this work on the side. Uh, you bring up a really important point there, I think, Sterling, in that I don't know what the general public knows about the different levels of the criminal justice system and how they are multivariate and not necessarily in contact with each other in meaningful ways. Because if, if you if you just think about the different forms of incarceration, there's a county jail, there's a state prison, and there's a federal prison, and all three of those have different policies and restrictions and everything. And may not be in, in you may be if you've gone through the, the the system, you may be sentenced to one, but you may spend time in another as you're either waiting to be placed or because there's an overflow. And that just makes uh, navigating the system incredibly difficult. And I don't really want to get too deep into the weeds of what you guys are are researching and, and the efforts that you're doing at this point. I want to save that for uh, another episode. That's a teaser, ladies and gentlemen. But I, I would like to get your comments on this, on, on because America is such a, my gosh, we have like 18,000 different police organizations in this country. So there's a lot of areas where information can be lost or somebody can tell you something for their organization that doesn't apply for another organization, which actually affects the person you're trying to help. So uh, any experience you guys have in navigating that, I would like to, to touch on it. Kind of the last question for this episode. Well, I could I could give you like a, a brief story of an individual I I know who found himself at one level, which was the state, and because he had a consecutive sentence in the at the federal level, after you know, so after the state, he goes to the they didn't bother with any sort of reentry planning, which in this particular state, reentry planning is only 60 days prior to release. So figuring out what you're going to do and the classes that they have you take is only 60 days prior to getting <laughs> 60 days. Gosh, that's not long at all. Right. So um, and this is somebody who's been disconnected from any form of community, any sense of any, any connection with the outside um, for 10 years plus. So then the the federal sentence was was short and he was, you know, forced to scramble. And this was out of state. This was in a whole other state scrambling to try to get together a plan and came back um, uh, and was released back in the home state and without a plan, went home. <laughs> And they said, you have to find somewhere to live in 60 days. And, and within that 60 days, he couldn't find employment and couldn't find a place to live. And they violated him and he had to go back. You know oh, what I mean? Man. It's just, just to really condense the story down, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he didn't meet the, the terms of, of release. It, in my humble opinion, he was set up to fail. So that's, you know, that's really pulls me in interest. Like I want to be 
part of solving that problem because that is just not fair anyway so no definitely so yeah as sterling is saying if you look at how things actually happen and how things are actually set up it seems clear that the priority is not caring for the people that like rehabilitating or reintegrating the people in your care actually using the word care is also a pretty radical thing to say because i don't think that's what the system is set up to do but we're but but anytime we're working with people we're taking care of people right that's the approach that I think systems should take, I think educational institutions should take that approach. And I think any institution, even, even if they're called correctional, how are you going to call yourself correctional? In what way are you correcting if you're not caring, if you're not looking at the person? But that, that is not what's happening. And that's become clear to me from doing this work and particularly from working on the Wisconsin decarceration platform, which is exactly meant to map and then somehow close all of the gaps in the system that make it really difficult for the people affected by the system to navigate the system. Even the services that are set up in the community to help them. There's just so many disconnects and there's very little trust between DOC and these service providers and very little trust, uh, very little money actually to go around to assist people in transitioning and very little awareness in the general public about how difficult that path of reintegration is for people, how little support they have, and how recidivism is also a symptom of incarceration itself. You are set up once you leave to have to go back to a lifestyle or maybe to go to a lifestyle that you're not equipped to, to navigate because then all of a sudden there are all of these barriers, housing barriers, employment barriers, uh, things might have advanced technologically, barriers of community, May, where are you going to go? People carry a lot of shame, and that shame is reinforced by the way that by the way that people are treated because of having a record. So, the Wisconsin Decarceration Platform uh, is is a collaborative project. UWM UWM System Institute of Systems Change, uh, which is the, a new name for for the program, and the, the Milwaukee Turners and SOE and a couple of other players in the community are creating a digital space where providers can network and close the gaps from that angle and then make their services also accessible to the people who need them in one place so that you can search housing or jobs or mental health services. And we're also thinking about potentially eventually partnering with DOC to offer these services to people before they get out. So, you know, to have the reentry process be six six months to maybe a year prior to release, right? So that when they do leave, it's not just this sort of like, you know, here's five bucks, get in a van, figure it out, which is, which sounds bonkers, but is actually what happens. Yeah. Because we have seen the students that have been in our classes deal with precisely that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, both you and Sterling have, have pointed to this point, and it's so true that a lot of times reentry is given very little thought and even less resources so that it is if there is a program it's not a very long one and there are so many things that you have to to think about because not only do you have to think about do you have a support system are you in a state are you incarcerated in a state if you are at the federal level that you have a support system if not how are you going to get back sometimes they'll give you bus fare sometimes they won't you're left to figure it out on your own and 
on, on top of that, if you do have any kind of conditions to your release, which is something, again, that Sterling was pointing to, meeting those. It's not like it, it, most people don't have a job they can just walk into once they they are reintegrated into the community. And there's all kinds of fees associated with everything. If you have to do any kind of drug screening, you usually have to pay for that. If you have to go to a parole officer, there's sometimes a fee associated with that. So there's this entire capitalist system built around this. And that's not even talking about the for-profit prisons, which are an, a, another bailiwick, which I don't – we don't really have the time to get into on this episode. But, I don't know how so, you can take something so bad and make it literally the worst. <laughs> yeah, the worst. So, yeah, uh, this is incredibly important work. And I, I'm very thankful that the two of you are doing it again and that to, to be associated with a center that is working towards this. Well, can I throw something in there? Sure. Go ahead. So there, there, this is I think this will be a good if anybody's listening. This would be a good a point of research, right? So in one case, there was a state that contracted a, some beds from private, you know, at this time, I, I can't remember what it's or what it is now, but it used to be the Corrections Corporation of America. A state contracted with Corrections Corporation of America a certain amount of beds for a certain amount of time. When they no longer needed the beds, they were in breach of the contract, so Corrections Corporation of America sued the state. So they're fill the beds or or pay for them. So is there some is there an incentive there? You know, so anybody out there is listening to the point of research if you're looking for something. To, uh, so core civics is what they're called now. But yeah, no, that that is a, a scourge across the entire thing. And I, I remember back in Kentucky, there was some talk about building a new prison and the different communities vetting for it. Because of the jobs that it would bring. And, and if you and I, I can't remember the numbers, I've seen them somewhere, but they were, were talking about and it was California, which we think of as a progressive state. But it was talking about the number of prisons built in a 15 year period as opposed to the number of schools built. And it was an astounding number, like 20 times as many prisons built as schools built and just all that money and poured into housing bodies as opposed to educating minds and that's just anyway yeah i think on that note too since education is the angle that i'm coming to it from and the angle from which i i can relate uh, because i don't have personal experience with with incarceration um i have seen the value of um, education as an agency building tool for individuals who are taught to close their minds um, and, you know, the, their, their inner freedom is curtailed as much as their physical freedom. And there's something about liberal arts, specifically humanities education, critical thinking, uh, sharing personal stories that can embolden, can really free people to get out and not, not be shackled still by the shame and the lack of dignity that incarceration imposes on them. But and then to be to be welcomed in a in another community in an educational community and we have such a long way to go with making institutions actually accessible and you know and diverse i know it's a word they throw around i know there are lots of attempts but as long as as long as institutions are for profit whether they're not for profit but but uh, private uh, they're going to serve their private interests 
Uh, and I think that's okay in, at Marquette, as long as Marquette recognizes that it's part of this broader community in Milwaukee um, and, that it ha and, and that its resources, as a Jesuit university, its resources have to be made accessible and available to everybody in ways that benefit those people, not in ways that we top down and decide they need to. And so it's a privilege to do this work, to have some knowledge of, of how to do this work so that the, the institution moves in that direction. But I think Marquette can't sit and not do this work. And so I feel privileged to be one of the people doing it. It's great. I've had you guys on for longer than I intended to, but this has such, been such a great and despite the, the topic matter, a fun conversation and getting to know the two of you a little bit better than I, I previously did. I want to thank you for taking the time on your Friday morning to get up early and, and speak with me and to our listeners here on Curdle Conversations. If you have anything, any closing remarks that either one of you would like to make, please feel free to do so. And then after that, I will wrap us up. I will take the silence to mean that there are none. Well, thank you both for appearing. Uh, we will have thank you both you. back on to uh, go deep into the woods, as they say, about what you are actually doing and not just kind of setting the stage that we did here and getting to know you. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, thank Ben. You. Oh, you're very well. And thank you for listening to Curdo Conversations. Thank you for listening to this episode of Quirtual Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek on SoundCloud.